Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the BSF study on the Old Testament Minor Prophets. I'm Abraham Lee, the teaching leader for the San Francisco region of BSF, and today we are reviewing the last lesson, Lesson 29, as a debrief of the incredible study that hopefully has deepened your understanding of God and His plan and His work through Israel and Judah and for the rest of the world, and what this has meant for humanity in preparing our hearts and minds for the promised Messiah. So I have a few announcements before we get into that. Um, so next week is sharing day. Congratulations, you've made it to the end of the study. But next week, we're coming informally together to share in our group. So this is not the last meeting that we're having. So please be sure to put that on your calendars. Meet with your groups. I, uh, various different groups are doing different things. Some are getting together for dinner. Others are just kind of gathering informally to share and to debrief around what impact the study has had on uh, each of your lives. And so please be informed and, and share with your members before uh, heading out into the summer. The next term, however, in the fall of 2023, in September when we get back, we're going to be going through the Gospel of John. That's been an incredible study. And many people have already told me they've gone through it two or three different times and continue to learn and kind of unpack things that they've never even considered before. So this is going to be a worthwhile treat to dedicate our times to. And then following the uh, Gospel of John study in the spring of 2024, we're going to go back into the study of Revelation. So if you have found the book of Revelations to be mysterious and very, very uh, kind of opaque, difficult to read through and study on your own, that's going to be a critical time for you to join up with us again and um, go through it through a methodical study of unpacking. And then also, finally, let your leaders know if you are not returning next fall for the study of the Gospel of John. Otherwise, you're going to get a lot, lot of mails from us reminding you of how to study and the materials are going to be sent and where to get them. And so if you don't want to be uh, bothered with that and you know for certain that you're not going to be joining us, please do let your group leader know. If there's anything that we can do to kind of prod you, maybe encourage you to join, because you know when you study BSF and you're thinking, oh, will I have the time or not have the time? Likely as not, the Holy Spirit has something um, in mind for you. That's always been the case for me. I, I come in with such, I come up with a, a fraction of the expectation of what I'm going to get, and God gives the increase to overflowing to I'm mean, truly to overflowing I mean I can't capture everything that God gives me it's just it's incredible this past year for me personally has been transformative and I've never in my life gone through the Old Testament study of the prophets in the way we have historically placed to read the prophets writing historically placed within the history of the Israelites and to see this meaning and the full the import of what they were going through so um, uh, meaningfully explained so that I understand why God was doing the things that he did. And that's only built my uh, confidence in my faith and my ability to articulate what I believe in and the assurance that God knows what he's doing. I mean, these were not just random things of uh, hit and miss, uh, dropping the ball and fumbling and clumsily picking up their faith and just... Um, random skirmishes in despair and repair. No, no, it's not there. It, this is uh, fully intended by God to show us His glory. 
So, you know, if there's anything to know deeply well, by the way, in the Gospel of John, that we can expect is that God's going to reveal to us, especially in the days we live in, the importance of knowing what the Gospel message is, who Jesus is in the Gospel, in the Good News, so that we can be better prepared to hold it out to those people, who, others that we need to uh, testify to. I mean, testify is an important work for men. We failed to do it in the very beginning in the garden. We, we kept our mouth shut. We just kind of looked on. Uh, uh, and, and that's not, God doesn't want us to keep doing that, to stand by and let things happen. Uh, we need to be on guard for ourselves and for our loved ones. So the more you study the gospel, the more confidence you will have in knowing that what you believe and what you should share about our Messiah is clear and cogent and consistent. So what is next week's sharing day about? Well, for those of you who, who have not done this before, there is no lesson question to um, pull apart or to answer. You just come and everyone is given some time, maybe about five minutes or so to share uh, what's been the most challenging things that you've learned, What you what's prompted growth during this last term? What are you most thankful for? How are you going to change and live differently from what you know? How has it built up your faith? And to, you know, think about these things from the perspective of other people who will share answers to these questions in a way that's quite different from your own. So it's going to be very important. Give God the glory is what this time is about. So please come. Um, usually uh, the leaders ask for you to come up with one word so it's sometimes called a one-word sharing day. So come up with one word that will trigger the testimony that you want to bear to your group. Some of these groups will be meeting in conjunction with others. So they're going to combine groups. I know our group is meeting with all the other in-person groups that are meeting at First Baptist. So yeah, uh, ask your leader what their your plans are, your, what your particular plans will be for our final meeting. So let me go into our kind of debriefing uh, lecture for today. Um, so you remember this, right? Amos 7, 8, where God says, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. And that's not the first time he set a plumb line. Uh, the plumb line has been in the covenant and through the law, Levitical law that he gave Israel that defined who they were. So what is happening in our time? You know, we completely lack understanding of God's plumb line, God's laws, rules, ways of living that are so essential to who we are and how we interrelate with one another, right? We can't live without other people and we can't live with them too. So what is this about that God has created us in relationship with others and with himself? So what is happening to us as a modern people so caught up in the rush and push of this world that we have forgotten uh, the practice of slowing down and being contemplative about why we are alive and what we are moving into. We go from one streaming movie to the another without any contemplation or reflection. Everything is just one movie after another, one entertainment venue after another. Very little reflecting and contemplating and discussing and I've, I've talked about it before, how important having at least one significant discussion, one significant talk with others per week is so essential to developing out a contemplative life. So discussing is especially the spiritual purposes and origins of our lives, recognizing gaps in our humanity and our thinking, gaps in our life story, gaps, gaping gaps that need to be filled 
for us to know what is it is to live meaningfully and purposefully. People are losing the plot, you know, the plot of history and why they're alive individually and then as a hum as in the larger uh, humanity. And so we are missing here in our generation the larger divine narrative for our exist existence. There is an article um, under this title, Losing the Plot, in 2019 Psychology Today magazine, piece explaining how when people lose the narrative plot, they get into this deep sense of loss and sense of emptiness and purposelessness. And it starts to have a limiting effect for everything that they do uh, because nothing has any purpose anymore. And you lose sense of what's valuable and what's how to live and why I should be doing anything at all. You might say the crisis of our generation is a loss of purpose. So this approach, the Psychology Today article says, of um, undertaking uh, narrative therapies for people is part and parcel of helping people piece together a meaningful narrative of their own, one they, they can believe in, one that's logical and reasonable, one that's bigger than themselves, that encompasses them but is grander, uh, pieces together for them why they exist. Our generation has lost the na narrative plot of God's great work in humanity, and people are floundering in confusion about what life is ultimately about. People look to all kinds of human ingenuity and advancement, but really, on deeper inspection, what am I going to do going to Mars? What are spaceships going to do for me going out into the outer abyss? There's no meaning or purpose out there. Sci-fi is more fiction than science. And the Bible tells us not to forget God's story. Because in their outer space, the deepest reaches of the, of the outer uh, universe points to the grandness and, and points to the, the person of God himself. He is infinite. His thinking is far above and beyond our ways and our way of thinking. So the Bible tells us not to forget God's story and plot in this existence. Because in the very minutia of how we're living, this perspective each one of you have about life itself is an experience of God. If you think about how you're living, if you think about the, the very fact that you're alive, the fact that your body can exists, that you're composed of cells, trillions of cells, individually undertaking hundreds and thousands of chemical transactions that keep you alive. I mean, and then it does this without making sound that will, uh, that is so cacophonous as to <laughs> make you go crazy. I mean, the fact that there's trillions of factories that make up who you are and that make you live as you are in this beautiful life, in this beautiful world, and they all profess to the magnificence of God. That itself is a miracle and it's telling you something. Don't lose the plot. God desires for us to know the larger transcendent narrative and the divine plot where we are all main characters being called to receive his redemptive plan through the Messiah Yeshua, who is Jesus, Latin form of Yeshua, who is the only way into the future beyond this life. So we have completed a long, arduous journey together through many books of the Old Testament, I just want to close off uh, just having us consider some unique and unusual features in our study that we have that we can find in no other account from ancient times. You can go through any other ancient uh, books or texts left behind to humanity. You will not find anything close to what the Bible has to say to us.
So just even the small portion that we read through the Old Testament. We read from over 15 books of the Old Testament that's composed of 253 chapters covering more than 12 different prophets in this people of the promise, kingdom divided, minor prophet study. No other ancient text from antiquity has such a consistent and unified story of rulers, kings, and people of influence and power so downright negative, <laughs> so unflattering as the scriptures. These kings were all moral failures. If you've come across any, any, ascriptions to the kings of ancient times, they are incredibly self-flattering. They're almost put up in a position of being gods. They're deified, right? But here, all of these moral failures that we see are against God's plumb line, God's standards, kings and priests alike, people from the lowest to the highest. Even the good kings discovered that they hardly touched the surface of the major moral problems that had deep roots in the land among their people. It couldn't be rooted out. I mean, no matter how good the king was, it always had limitations and and stumbling points and barriers. So, and this was a, you know, a very small country compared to empires of the past and then also even nations of today. So can you imagine how difficult it would be to unify under a single righteous ruler in a much larger context of modern times? More populous, but then also more fractured. This is this is a daunting task that no one can accomplish except the Messiah, God's anointed one. That's the first point. Second one, no other historical ancient text that writes of their leaders and rulers uh, continue to not only just mention the negative and unflattering things, but go into detail to tell us with extreme detail of places and people involved and all the ways in which they lived into their lives counter to God's ways and God's explicit commands. So these shortcomings are explained in such detail that we don't find in any other works of antiquity like this. This is truly unique. And it's measured up not against the world standards of what kings are famous for, such as conquering new territory and capturing untold millions of people, amassing riches and conquests and you know getting more livestock and expanding territory. That's the story of every other ruler of the past. That's the history that you read about in school, in textbooks. This biblical account is totally different. It's entirely measured by a spiritual measure of things that's always presented itself by God's divine standard of what is his purposes for Israel. The standards of God written into the covenant that defined the raison d'etre, or the reason for existence of this peculiar nation. Sorry, I was using some French here. <laughs> uh, raison d'etre, or reason for existence, right? Unlike all the other nations of the world, this is point three, which constantly warred to expand their power and might, this nation solely existed to establish and root themselves into God's identity for them. That was their only purpose. And that was within the confines of this very small piece of territory God gave them. They weren't to go beyond it. They were at the hinges of the continents. The three main continents had their crossroads in the Levant, where humanity met, interacted, traded. But then as they shared ideas and knowledge, that knowledge led to the knowledge of God through the nation of priests. 
They were solely charged to be a nation of priests to the nations, living into what they knew, so that by their life testimony, they could bear to the rest of the nations of the Messiah, the anointed king who would come. Well, whether by faithful obedience or disobedience, this was something that they would achieve anyway by God's mercy and grace, not only on them, but for all humanity. This formed, however, for them, the basis for all that they were commanded to work and persist in doing. It was centered around a moral and spiritual education headed up by the Levitical uh, priestly class, right, that trickled down to all of or should have trickled down to all of the different tribes, and that centered on knowing and loving God, which would lead into knowing and loving each other. So unlike our constitution and any other constitution based on man, the Israelites had their constitution. The constitution for existence was founded not on the basis of serving and fulfilling myself, my pursuit of happiness, but it was based on the serving God in ministry to the world. That was their constitutional uh, prerogative, not in constant pursuit of their own survival, the pursuit of our rights and privileges or self-preservation or self-gain as our constitution or the constitutions of the world aim to express and line out. Uh, the constitution of God is one of having the world look for him and to seek out his person, seek out who he is so that we can imitate him and we can live after his ways, love the things that he loves and be affectioned in our hearts for the things that he highly values. Point five is not only did the leadership fail, the people failed. They consistently refused to be taught or to be led. So this idea that they were stubborn and uh, mule-headed, right? That led to the Israelites aspiring for, not the things of God, but they aspired and dreamed for a world city like Babylon. They weren't pursuing Zion. That's point six. Babylon was their city on a hill. That's what they aspired for. But the Israelites, instead of leading the nations, they were following the pagan nations in their worldly, brutal, perverted, and filthy practices, they idolized and identified with idols rather than with God himself. So they killed and mistreated every messenger of God sent to them to warn them. If they did that to their messengers of God, the scriptures later ask, what would humanity have done with God's son himself if he was sent? God kept his promise to send the Savior who would change all of that. The Messiah would lead all of us in the spiritual calling Israel was called to in the world. He would be, the Messiah would be from the line of King David, as promised. And he would have his dominion and power in which there would be no end. And the age of grace calls out today to all nations. And Israel continues to be a symbol of Christ's Zion, the holy city from which all waters of benediction of God's good blessing, the word of blessings can flow, waters of cleansing and enrichment, which flow from his throne. And despite all of Israel's failures, this little isthmus of ground, which is Israel, continues to embrace and symbolize all of God's promises made in the past, the significance of those promises being fulfilled in the present, and all of which God will 
do and, and continue to do and, and will fulfill in the future as Israel continues to point to the redemption of God to all the nations. And we are included in the inheritance of Israel, the true Israel, those who are true sons and daughters of God. There is no city that is more loaded with meaning, symbolizing the kingdom of the future as Jerusalem, God's city of peace. But God has compassion on Israel, the nation of Israel. So over the millennia, while many nations and ethnicities came and went, we also see that Israel, the nation itself, was preserved to this day and still exists to fulfill their original calling. And we'll see how that works out in these days as God has called that diaspora of nations to come. And, and after a time, this point 13, I'm sorry, I, have, I didn't do a good job of pointing out the different points. But um, regardless here, I just have two more to make that the people of God will continue to preach the gospel of salvation to all the world. That's that's the work of testifying given to the church in this age. A rebellion against God's word will rise up once again, though, and wage war against God's people. And we'll see this in the study of Revelations. That judgment will happen at the hands of the person they will exalt to fight against God. And like Babylon, though, they too will be judged a final time. And the diaspora believers will be called back to their true king and their true kingdom that God has prepared for those who love him and are called according to his purpose in the Messiah. So how did the lecture help you or how does this uh, last term help you in your understanding? I just want to close off by sharing again some important verses that were found in this final chapter of or lesson in our uh, manual here, starting with Isaiah 40. And I'll just read off just short parts that are significant for us to just sit on as we conclude. Uh, he's, God says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not told, been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and stretches them out like a tent to live in. And he brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. So that no sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these things? Who, he who brings out the starry hosts one by one, calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. But he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak, such that even youth grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength and they will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Isaiah 53, 1-12 who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the arm is, of course, symbolizing the efficacy and the powerful might 
you know, you have your right arm that is the arm that gets things done. Well, God has the arm of his righteousness, Christ, who will get things done. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God and smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep had gone astray. Each of us had turned to his own way. And the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And I like this part. It says, And who can speak of his descendants? Of course, Jesus didn't have physical descendants. But in God, there are descendants. This whole talk of descendants come up again. In the verse 10, he says, He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and the rich in his death. And But then in verse 10, it goes back to this idea of descendants. Jesus' descendants. It says, And the Lord makes his life of guilt offering. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. How amazing is that? We are his offspring. And after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by the knowledge of my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Amen to that. And then Romans 9, 1-5. Uh, those who are doubting whether Jesus was really God himself, well, you can read first chapters of Hebrew 1 or Colossians 1. Paul is always talking about this. Romans 9, 1-5, he says, Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. <laughs> so when he says amen, it's kind of like saying, you know, this is the fact of the matter, period, the end. There is no other discussion behind this. <laughs> this is fact of all facts. Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. And they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. And that rock was Christ. And he is the fulfillment of the ages. Verse 11. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You need to get back to understanding that the foundation of all of our faith is in Christ. Christ himself. Acts 17.28 For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Again, his descendants. And... 1 John 1, 1 through 7. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. You'll hear more and more these days people saying, well, the gospel writers and the people who wrote the Bible didn't really know Jesus personally themselves, not directly. People who say things like that have themselves not read the scriptures. First John here is saying, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. 
the life appeared and we have seen it and testified to you and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the father and has appeared to us and then it, it, you know the, the word we just keeps coming up it says in verse 3 we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard didn't he just say this again but just to make sure he's saying again we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus christ we write this to make our joy complete, to give you assurance. Wow, this is wonderful. And then verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sins. Yeah. So, yes, Christ is the fulfillment of all that we are looking at, and we will continue to see in the Gospel of John next term. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the confidence that you give us through your Son, our Lord Jesus, and the testimony, Lord, given to us through the patriarchs, those who have walked with you and talked with you and lived with you, who testify to the truth. And there is no truth in any other, Lord. We thank you that you are the source of all truth. And you've lived among us. You've spoken through your disciples and your apostles and through the prophets, Lord. Everything, Lord, is incredibly unified. Over thousands and thousands of years, Lord, you have declared yourself and you have woven out the narrative of what we have to understand, that we have no other recourse in this life except to come to you and accept you by your own terms, that you are the redemptive Messiah, the one who laid down your life so that we might live. As John said, you are the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world, and we believe and we trust in you. And we praise you and lift you up and we thank you, Lord, for this tremendous privilege of having your word so close and freely available for us to study and learn. There is no other written text of, among men that is more worthy, Father, of study and of committing to memory and committing to our hearts than your word. We thank you for everything, Father. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.